Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, we're talking about one of Europe's most iconic wildflowers, the common bluebells, Hyacinthoides nonscripta. If you've ever traveled or live anywhere within the northwestern corner of Spain all the way up to the British Isles, these wonderful bulbs paint entire landscapes blue for a short period of time every spring, and they are fascinating plants. And my guest today has taken a really interesting perspective on studying them. Joining us is Dr. Vera Fitzsimmons-Toss. She is a chemical ecologist who, after experiencing a wildfire on her properties, turned her sights onto the amazing ecological dynamics of bluebells and how they interact with other plants on the landscape, such as bracken fern. Nowadays, she is also a bluebell farmer, offering sustainably produced bluebells for native gardens around Europe. Her insights into the world of bluebell ecology are really based in chemistry, which is a fascinating take to have on any plant because plants really are these chemical beings that interact with the world around them via chemical gradients and interactions. It is amazing stuff. And the work of her and her colleagues has really painted a fascinating picture of these plants. So I don't want to delay this any longer. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Fitzsimmons-Toss. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Vera Fitzsimmons-Toss, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. How about we start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do? Okay, well, these days I'm a bluebell farmer and I got interested in bluebells about 15 years ago. I live in North Wales on an upland farm and um, as you often have, you have a fire and that fire just happened to have been at the right time of so it cleared the ground and um, later on in spring, uh, what we saw was a lot of blue. And basically we had an extensive bluebell population there. And in Great Britain, bluebells are protected. So my background is I'm a chemist. I've studied my undergrad in Germany. I've done a PhD in Britain. I've done a postdoc in Sweden and in Aberdeen. And I've always been interested in chemical ecology. So um, I thought bluebells, great, interesting plant. So you've got an interesting chemistry behind this. So I'd like to research those. And as I found out, because they're protected, you actually need to have a license. So I've applied for a license and got that, which gave me the materials to work with. And um, a few years later on, I had three PhD students and we were working together on the site. One focusing on bluebells, one focusing on bracken, one focusing on the, um, um, well, the soil chemistry, essentially, particularly phosphorus. And um, yeah, we got some interesting work done there. And people also asked me if um, I would sell bluebell bulbs and seeds. And uh, I was like, well, yes, if you want to. So I've been doing that for about 15 years as well. Not very successfully, but um, <laughs> it goes. It's something. It's a fascinating combination of interests and sort of serendipity with the fire bringing out a big flush of them. But you know, a lot of my listeners are in the UK, but many more of them are probably over here in North America or not really situated in a place to know what species of bluebell we're talking about today. And and here in North America, there's a, at least one species that's not related that goes by bluebell. So which species are we talking about when you say bluebell? We are talking about Hyacinthoides non scripta. 
It's a plant which is up to 50 centimeters tall. It uh, has got long, narrow leaves, got maybe up to 10 leaves maximum. It has got a flower stem which comes out. And the characteristic is, is that the flower stem is nodding. Mm. And on that knotted stem, you have between uh, probably 3 to 30 blue, very narrow shaped bells hanging off them. And the extent of the species is predominantly in the UK and some on the northwestern fringes of Europe. But otherwise, that's its main sort of uh, um, habitat, if you want, or its main extent. Wonderful. And when you say it's threatened, I mean, what are some of the issues facing this species in a broad sense? Obviously, it's probably going to vary region by region. But what what makes it threatened and protected uh, where you're living? Yeah, it's a it's a recurring argument which comes out. And in the UK, bluebells are an indicator species for native woodlands. So in order to get large, extensive populations, you need hundreds of years for bluebells to actually form hundreds of thousands or millions of individuals. There are iconic pictures from Great Britain which show um, a woodland where the forest floor is literally blue with flowers. Mm. And um, if you look at individual plants, bluebells, they aren't particularly showy. (laughs) So if you are thinking about when when garden landscaping arose, you wanted to have that effect of something which is like a bluebell, but is actually a little bit more showy of happens to flower a little bit earlier. And this is when during Victorian times, the horticultural trade introduced Spanish bluebells. Hyacinthoides hispanica. They grow very well in the British climate and they are mostly found in gardens or cultivated landscapes. And there are theories that because there is hybridization occurring between the, if I refer to them, the British and the Spanish bluebells, that um, you get hybrids and that the British bluebell may be outcompeted. This is not really, um, there is different arguments sometimes it's like oh yes it's a threat you know we won't have British bluebells for a long time but it's recently been worked by Pete Hollingsworth in in Edinburgh has shown it's actually not as bad as was thought but for British context it's a nice story to raise awareness of um, non-native plants and they are they are fine in you know in the intended locations but if people start to for example, dig out soil from their garden and dump it in, uh, dump it in the nearest woodland, then you might get a problem of introducing the wrong plant in the wrong condition. Right. And I like sort of those poster child experiments in terms of just getting the, the public, uh, their awareness raised for sort of the lesser paid attention to organisms. Like you said, you could see these things in mass quantity and go, wow, that's a beautiful sight. But individually, you might not get a, you know many people thinking about what's going on with that individual species. But I'm curious for you, uh, with your background in chemistry and your interest in chemistry, what made you look at these bluebells and go, there's something here more than any other plant? I mean, where did this sort of interest begin? Was it just you were rooted in nature and this was a cool observation that you hadn't really seen before? Or was it just kind of, like you said, serendipity? It happened with the fire and some questions came to mind. Okay, two reasons. One reason was uh, initially I was interested in the chemistry because serendipity, a friend of mine did a PhD on amino sugars and bluebells. And he did it looking at it in search of new medicines. 
Mm. Now, the second reason is I come more from a direction of how can plant chemically influence their ecosystem. So the population I'm working working with, more than 90% of the biomass is either bracken or bluebells. So what is it that these two plants have that manages to reduce other competition apart from, say, call it a, a mineral, you know, influencing the mineralogy of the soil or outcompeting by, by taking sunlight? So there is often there is chemical defense, allelopathy, and we were really trying to find supporting evidence for that. That is awesome. And I love allelopathy because it, it's... It kind of flies in the face of this idea of plants being these peaceful, harmonious organisms all cooperating out in the woods together. And, and it really puts it into context that these are organisms fighting for survival and trying to take over territory to expand their genetic influence. And I mean, you mentioned that it was either bracken or bluebells, or at least those, those were the dominant players. But what made you think, did you know coming in that there was some sort of chemical warfare going on under the soil? Or, or were you just trying to sort of investigate that uh, to see if it was even there? Well, if you're an academic, you have to put out sort of a possible PhD project. <laughs> so, and I'd like the notion of, you know, I've, I've put out a, um, a theme on poison soils, bluebell and bracken climate vegetation in order to look into that. And it caught some interest and I've recruited two good PhD students on the basis of that. So, nice. you know, let's just go and have a look. Awesome. So where do you begin looking at this? I mean, it's not something that you can like throw on goggles and dive underwater to observe these sorts of things. It's soil. It's really hard to know what's going on just under the soil surface. So where do you begin trying to understand allelopathy and chemical warfare among plants, uh, particularly bluebells and bracken? Well, I can give you a sort of um, traditional natural products chemistry outline. Sure. So... Before I get to that, I'd like to say if you're looking if you're looking at a plant, like if you're looking at bluebells, for example, you've got the root system, you've got a bulb, you've got leaves, you've got stems, you've got flowers, you've got scapes which surround the flowers, you've got seeds. So you've got different types of plant material. And chemically, they're usually different. Mm. They might be just a little bit different, or they might be a lot different, like often the below ground parts are quite chemically different from the above ground parts. Hmm. Secondly, if you are looking at allelopathy, you are looking at concentrations which are in the order of, you know, milligrams per kilogram, parts per million, ppm. <laughs> you know, there might even the more active a compound is, the less concentration it is present in the plant. So you need to have something where you can obtain sufficient material from in order to actually have a chance to find those few milligrams of something which is highly active. So with bluebells and brackens, we concentrated on the roots and the bulbs, and they are quite easy to find. With bluebells, we then focus on the flower because the flower is quite often, I mean, the flower needs to be attractive for pollinators. The flower needs to be able to, you know, be protected from herbivores particularly. And um, yeah, we went out and collected about, um, I think it was about two kilograms of dried flowers, which is quite a lot. Yeah, And then you start with your traditional natural products chemistry, you basically go and extract it. Hmm. And you sort of start, you first do a uh, use as non-polar a solvent as you can, which is hexane generally, and then you see what do you get out when you add hexane to it. 
you've got a residue left over. And then after hexane, you probably use methanol. And then you mm. see what do you get out with methanol. And after methanol, you might use water at the last stage, or you might use acetone. So you so you go through, you see what, what do you get out, and what you get out is generally a mixture of tens of different compounds and then you have to go and sort of split that mixture of tens of different compounds up in order to try to get to indiv the individuals and then what you have to do is once you know that your individuals are pure you have to apply spectroscopy because that will then tell you how the atoms in the molecule relate to each other and that will give you hopefully um the three-dimensional structure wow yeah, I remember trying to do some of that in organic chemistry and not being very good at it. So my head is off to all of you <laughs> doing the the really difficult work of understanding chemistry for people that don't understand chemistry. But, you know, plants, like you said, you can get lots of different chemicals. They are chemical gradient beings. You know, they are operating with a lot of different stuff going on inside of them. How do you start to identify which compounds might be responsible for, say, this chemical warfare? Well, in an ideal world, you would have a bioassay that you can test that with. Um, what we have done with our compounds of interest is we worked with a number of different academics and different companies, and um, they have screening tests set up. Mm. Like any major sort of multinational pesticide company, for example, would be interested in finding an antifungal, finding an insecticide, finding a weed killer, finding something with biological activity. So we've subjected our isolated compounds to those tests, and we didn't find any particular activity. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I know, that was a bit sad. <laughs> but that's science, though, right? I mean, you can oftentimes that go finding things thing or go looking for things, thinking they're going to be there, and then, nope, sorry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what happens when, you know, you, you've got the pressure to publish, the pressure to try to get students moving through, or just to try to understand the system a little bit more? What happens when, you know, it comes back and nothing? I mean, where do you shift your focus to, or where did you shift your focus to? Well, what, what we did find was we found a surprisingly, I said I had a, a doctor who was working on bluebells, Risco was working on bracken, and um, Victor was working on the soil chemistry. Hmm. And he looked at his PhD topic was phosphorus speciation using NMR. And um, what we have also done is, that was early on another, to add another level of complication to the system is, if I go and harvest a plant today, it's going to have a different chemical makeup from if I go there in a month. Hmm. Or if I go there, I mean, anybody who harvests fruit knows that you pick blackberries when they are dark. <laughs> or, you know, an apple is ripe when the seeds are brown. Or, you know, my rhubarb is just coming up. And, you know, if I've got a nice long red stem, then it looks sort of, you know, suitable to eat. If I go and sample that rhubarb plant a month earlier, I probably get a different answer. Hmm. So you have what is known as seasonal variation. And this is also in the chemistry. So what we have done is on the site, we went and um, sampled what a colleague of mine called uh, a miniature ecosystem which means we had a sampler which was 20 by 20 centimeters square and the soil depth is only about up to 25, 30 centimeters. So we've collected the whole soil core and we looked at what, what, what was above ground and what was below ground. We separated the plant material from the soil 
And um, we've done that in weekly intervals or fortnightly intervals through it wow. during the growth of Eagles and Bracken. So we had about, I think it was 40 sampling occasions throughout the year with huh. short intervals at the key growth phases, if you want. So when we basically sat down and looked at the data and reviewed the data, one thing which was a bit of a surprise for us that was that in bluebells, the concentration of phytate is very high. So you had a concentration of the phosphorus bound within bluebell bulbs, I think was about 60% in the form of phytate. Wow. Phytate is probably not a known term, if I maybe explain what the molecule sure, yeah, is. Sure, yeah, yeah, please. It is, um, you know, photosynthesis is built on the production of glucose. And glucose is a, uh, is a ring sugar. Mm-hmm. So you have on glucose, you've got, I think it's five OH groups. So if instead of the alcohol groups in the glucose being connected to a proton, if you swap that over for a phosphate and you do that with all the exchangeable protons in the system, then you come to phytate or you come to what is known as organically bound phosphorus. So this, for example, for agriculture, it is quite interesting if they are looking at the, at the phosphorus content of the soil, what form is the phosphorus in? Is it available? Is it in the form of the, um, you know, of the phosphate or uh, hydrophosphate? Or is it maybe bound to the mineral form where you would need more acidic conditions in order to free it? Or is it organically bound? And if it's organically bound, you can't really get, you know, free the phosphorus off there and have it available as plant food because you would need to have another organism, usually mycorrhizal fungi, in order to cleave that phosphate off and then make it available. And this is where your exchange system of um, soil, vascular mycorrhizae, fungi, plant root system comes from. So the high phytate content in the soil and in the bulbs and also in the seeds of blue world made us think that maybe The way it works is that you have got a system whereby when the plant sequesters phosphorus and sheds its leaves in the soil, it it leaves its seeds, it sort of stores it in the bulb. What it does is it chemically protects them in the form of phytate because then bluebells have a life cycle whereby they start growing very early. Hmm. So in winter when most plants are dormant, generally sort of, uh, well, late autumn, I should say, November, December, their root system starts to grow. In January, February, you see the first leaves appearing. So it has got like a head start. Hmm. And so in that head start, it might be able to sort of, you know, access the bound phosphorus, which is in the soil in the form of phytate, which then sort of stops other plants, in particular bracken in that instance, to get hold of it. And therefore you first see a flush of bluebells. And once that's gone, then you see the bracken coming through, which is significantly later compared to bracken populations nearby, which do not grow in combination with bluebells. Wow, what a dynamic. So if I understood that correctly, you've got the bluebells taking up phosphate, uh, phosphorus in the soil, bounding it into their tissues in a way that doesn't make it readily available, and then cueing their growth habits or at least their phenology around a way that they can also reaccess the stuff that was previously bound in their own tissues, therefore denying it from a lot of other plant life. But where are they getting it in the first place? I mean, you mentioned the mycorrhizal fungi. They they, they partner throughout this process to originally get their hands or roots, yeah. I should say, yeah. on the phosphorus. Yeah. 
Wow, that is quite the system. And so why is it that the fungi are good? I mean, obviously, you're not studying the fungi per se, but is there an indication that the fungi are, why are they better at getting some of that organically bound phosphorus uh, more so than, say, a plant could get for itself? Yeah, I sometimes wonder if it's purely a question of size. You know, if you look at a phosphate, you've got a PO4-3 minus. Well, it wouldn't be as PO4-3 minus in, in the soil. It would be at H2PO4 minus in the soil. But that is quite small. So you're looking at, what, five atoms. Hmm. Now, if you are looking at phytate, you're looking at five of those plus a sugar. So you are at, golly gosh, somewhere around 60 to 80 atoms. I could probably work it out, but I haven't done that. <laughs> you know, quite all right. So, so how do how do plants how do plant roots? I mean, plant roots are pretty porous in order to allow water and nutrient uptake. But if you are increasing the size tenfold, maybe the pores aren't big enough. Mm. I mean, I don't know. You know, I'm I have not looked in any detail into Arbuscular mycorrhizae. Sure. But this is my this is one sort of just purely physical aspect that may make it necessary to allow uptake, also diffusion in soil. If you are small, you know, if you're a solium atom, if you're a potassium atom, you can move through soil water quite quickly. Hmm. But the bigger you get, the longer it takes you. Makes sense. I like thinking about it, some sort of the physical root of things, because really you can reduce a lot of what's going on in nature down to physics like that. But when you think of even the finest root hairs, you know, they pale in comparison to the network of just surface area that the mycorrhizae are able to access and get, you know, explore in the soil interface. So it makes sense that partnering with fungi would be pretty advantageous. But what's amazing is you just outlined a story here that started with, are these bluebells going at chemical warfare? Are they poisoning the soil in a way that benefits them and not others? What you end up finding here, it sounds like they're not necessarily poisoning the soil, but they're engineering the local environment to a way that purely just benefits them, which is I mean, that had to really make you look upon this this flush of bluebells in your forest in a totally new light, right? Yeah, this is what we put out. They design their ecosystem. Well, they haven't got a will or they haven't got an intention, <laughs> but they evolved. Maybe that would be the best way of putting sure. it. They evolved to basically alter the soil environment that it is to their benefit because really individually they're very small plants. And there's like one paper which is... Uh, which is a, a review of an experiment which looked back at somebody's data from 45 years ago and looked at the spread of bluebells into, in newly planted locations. And they had an annual spread, uh, I think it was something like five centimeters. So it's minute. It's very small. But if you need to actually, you know, create your niche, if you want it does take time. It will take time. I mean, I've got on my land, I've got areas where I've thrown bluebell seeds down, where I've planted bulbs. And in some places, yes, they go. And in other places, it just <laughs> seems to take forever, you know, it seems to take an awful lot of seed that he needs to chuck with it. And it just, you know, it's not going anywhere. Wow. Yeah. I mean, when that that really makes you appreciate, like you said, sort of the old forest nature of these large colonies and, and how long it took to get to sort of understory dominance in that situation. But it, it, this this idea of binding up phosphorus in a way that only you can access it isn't the only trick they have up their quote-unquote sleeves. They're also really good physically. The way they grow, the way they kind of emerge and interact within the soil as a bulb and as well as above the soil with their leaves and flowers, they have other adventitious uh, sort of strategies uh, from a growth standpoint, right? Mm. 
Yes, I certainly do. The projectile roots is actually quite a useful one. And um, I'm not really sure if there's many plants of those, but quite often you get comments by people who say, well, I'm trying to, I mean, bluebells are also partly seen in the horticultural world in Britain as invasive plants, because once you've got them, you can't get rid of them. And um, that is due to that every year of their growth, during flowering, the whole bulb virtually disappears and you then get like a taproot. And that taproot sort of, you know, goes a little bit further down in the soil. And um, at the end of that that, uh, tappy root, you get a new bulb formed. So this is how it's how bluebells are capable of going through, you know, the root systems that you've got in forests. So that you basically it can find by using something which is little, it can sort of find its way through the roots. And we we see that with bracken roots. If anybody has ever dug, dug bracken out, the, the roots are sort of um, finger thick and you've got a network of roots, which is probably, I mean, where I'm working, it's about four inches deep. Whoa. And you can see them sort of, you know, going going through that, those tap roots and bluebell bulbs can be found down to a feet below ground. Wow. That's amazing. And yeah, I I don't think people fully appreciate how just the competition for space within the soil network, especially in a forest where you've got the roots of every other species living around you, and how amazingly advantageous that could be to be able to pull down beneath them and give yourself a little bit more room to breathe. But then you have to think about if they're a foot down in the soil, that bulb has pulled itself with its roots what you see is just the tip of a very long, I'm guessing, sort of spindly green iceberg trying to get back up yep. above the soil. So that's that seems like a little bit of a balancing act where you have to get your roots down and your bulb down below the root mat, but then you have to be able to penetrate it to come back up and, and do your above ground parts. And you also need to have a sufficiently large store that actually allows you to have the, you know, to form sufficient cells to form that biomass mm. that you need to to bridge that distance. But on the advantage side is that the, the further you are in the soil, the less cold you are. Mm. So, you know, you've got a bit of an insulation effectively through your soil layer. You know, you are you are less likely to get, um, I was going to say boggy. I should add to that. Bluebells like bracken are a plant that doesn't like wet feet. So you would be very unsuccessful planting them in any sort of wet or waterlogged ground. So maybe you should add that. But uh, um, it does help. Wow. Yeah, and and just thinking about the reserves. I mean, these are plants that are living on pretty slim margins, especially if you're in a shaded understory. Uh, you know, just trying to make ends meet by the end of your growing season. And they're not bluebells are not up all year, right? They kind of just flush in the springtime and then retreat back underground. So that margin's even slimmer in terms of how much gain they can get year after year. That is true, yes, and I'm and I'm just looking because okay. the other sort of trick you're talking about reserves there, and um, usually we would think with most um, with most plants we would consider cellulose or starch or glucose based carbohydrate mechanism to to underline plant life. Well, bluebells again are unusual because instead of relying on glucose, they're relying on fructose. And by using fructose as their main carbohydrate, and their fructose content is up to 70% of the bulb, it allows to metabolize it at less than 10 degrees, and it also allows them, you know, it gives them a mechanism by by which they can grow through cell elongation as opposed to new cell formation. 
That's interesting. So that's that's a very common strategy, at least for the geophytes or bulb-like plants here in North America. So this this idea of cell elongation versus cell division can make a big difference when it comes to rapidly expanding those tissues, right? I mean, that's kind of what it comes down to is the speed at which you can deploy. Yeah, yeah wow. absolutely. And so what is it about the, the fructose storing it that way that allows those metabolic processes to operate at cooler temperatures? Is it something about the chemistry of that particular sugar or is it something within the plant itself? I'm or- not sure. Fair enough. Not sure. No. <laughs> Many more mysteries. No, sugar chemistry was always a bit above me, I'm, I must admit. Sort of, you know, the, the, that's too complicated. <laughs> no. My colleague was looking more after the sugar side in that, in, in that respect. Quite all right. I mean, I can understand this is so much to chip away at and try to understand. I mean, even just from the chemistry standpoint, you're going, okay, well, we found this. What does that mean? And then you have to figure all the physics behind just the molecule itself and then how the plant works with it, right? I mean, it's a very involved process to go from chemistry to sort of metabolic activity in the big picture of things. Yep. (laughs) So what about the flip side of this story, the bracken? I mean, the bracken are not innocent little plants just standing by and letting the bluebells bully them around, right? They've got a few of their own things going on that you've you've at least started to chip away at. Yeah, they they certainly do do that. I mean, I think bracken is a fascinating plant because well, one form or other of bracken can be found in every part of the world apart from the Arctic. Mm. It grows absolutely everywhere. And we had a funny story, which was um, one of our PhD students who came sampling one time. He grew, he, is, he was from Nigeria. And we sort of, you know, we took him up to the field site. And at that point, bracken was, uh, it was nearly two meters tall. <laughs> so he sort of walked up and I says, I remember that. We, we used to play hide and seek in it back home. So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a well-known characteristic, again, quite often woodland plant that um, has got a worldwide distribution. So it's, so it's omnipresent in a way or ubiquitous. And the other thing I find interesting about Bracken, it's a huge biomass accumulator. So, I mean, the number of people who have looked at Bracken in terms of what can we do as a biomass? Can we make compost from it? Mm. Can we use it for food? Can we graze animals? Can we, can we use it for shelter? It goes down a long, long way. I mean, we were looking at uh, nutrients as well, and there were two fantastic papers which were written during World War II, which looked at, can we use Bracken for silage? Hmm. But one of the reasons why I think Bracken is so successful, it it has got an only very small time window, which is just when the fiddlesticks, just when it comes out, it sort of comes out and it has got like a curled leaf, which Hmm. then elongates as well. And um, just at that time point is when the nutrient balance is okay for consumption. And in some countries, I mean, Bracken fronds are eaten as a delicacy. Hmm. And otherwise, um, the plant is unpalatable. Yeah, I've understood it to be extremely toxic. I mean, anything that wants to eat it, especially in its adult form, is going to pay for it? Or is it kind of overhyped? I think that's a bit (laughs) overhyped. Good to know. Well, there is a very well-known compound present in Bracken, which is taquilocide. And taquilocide is the carcinogen in Bracken. And it's, um, as like with so many of these things, it depends on where it's grown, what the conditions are, what the actual concentration is. And generally, have been roots of exposure found through milk from cattle that have been eating bracken, 
And also there is often suspected poisoning in inverted commas of uh, groundwater sources due to taquilocyte. Now, taquilocyte is an inherently unstable molecule. Hmm. And that is what makes it so poisonous. It's carcinogenic. It contains a um, cyclopropene ring. Now, to make that term easier, it contains a cycle which has got like a triangle with three carbons, with a carbon in each corner. And um, usually a carbon-carbon-carbon angle is around 105 degrees. Now, if you look at a triangle, your angle is 60 degrees. So you've got a lot of tension going mm. on in there. So any opportunity for that ring to open, it opens. Wow. And if that opening occurs near DNA within cells after consumption, you have cell adducts. And this is where your lead to cancer comes in. Wow. But then you need to ask yourself, if I've got such an inherently unstable molecule, once I start harvesting the plant, how long is that going to stay intact? Or what do I need to do to it in order to, you know, open its cyclopropene moiety? And this is where treatments, and you find that quite often in um, in the preparation of food stuff by native community, where you might be treating with alkali, mm. or where you do, um, you know, you go through three cycles of boiling, or something like that. I mean, in Japan, the bracken fronds are a delicacy, and they are sought after every year. And there isn't a stomach cancer risk or stomach cancer observation in Japan. I mean, it's like. It comes up regularly, reckon being poisonous. It's just not particularly nutritious. Hmm. Right on. So you get these massive stands of bracken and it could be, you know, I mean, historically, again, I even took for granted that these were untouchable because they're, they're killing anything that tries to eat them. But it's really just, why would you spend time eating a, a ton of stuff that's not very nutritious? And so that's another great strategy of plants is just don't be that good to eat. <laughs> that's really fascinating. Yeah. And so how do you, do you have any indications then looking at sort of the interplay of bracken with uh, bluebells, at least in your forest where you've done these studies, why bracken's able to still obtain such a high biomass under these situations where bluebells seem to have some sort of early start advantage? I mean, what is bracken doing that allows it to also do well? Well, I think you've got, uh, um, first of all, you've got phenology. Hmm. One plant grows before the other, so bluebells grow before bracken. When there's bluebell, there's no bracken. When there's bracken, there's no bluebell. <laughs> and because the bracken is, as I say, on, on my side, it's about five, six feet tall, it shades out virtually everything else. So you're down to competition, so a basic principle in ecology, competition. The second point is, again, you've got an enormous root system. <laughs> so you work with a lot of stored resources within the root. I mean, the, the biomass of bracken is, you know, you've got more root compared to what you see above ground. But because we aren't, you know, we generally don't go somewhere and say, oh, that looks interesting. Let's have a bit of a dig here and see how the below ground life looks like. That's why we aren't aware of that. Hmm. Unless you find yourself in, in a situation where you have to do some bracken clearance and then, it's, uh, then you start to appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not necessarily bracken, but I've had a few plants where I've had to clear space and it is it can be a nightmare. But this idea of clonal growth and just root mass, I mean, we like you said, we don't see it. So we don't really think about it. But that clonal network, especially if you can maintain individuals attached by some sort of rhizome or stolen, really gives 
these populations such an advantage because every new individual is giving back, but it's also conquering new territory in the process. And if you can grow at different times, that phenological aspect is really cool too, because it's, it's taking a similar niche and just stretching it out through the year when those key moments are there that you can take advantage of it. That's a really interesting interplay. I mean, even though many plants show that, to be able to have evidence of it and to be able to track it between two species is, is really cool. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the very slow spread of bluebells earlier. Um, I suppose the annual spread of bracken can be as much as two meters. <laughs> wow. And it does grow predominantly, um, well, in the UK, it grows it grows via the rhizome. I mean, I had a former colleague of mine studied bracken for about 20 years, Robin Pakeman, up in Aberdeen, and he, he was saying that, um, well, we've tried to seed bracken. We were never, ever successful hmm. in Britain. And also, you have got, um, I think it's only about every once, every 10 years on average that, that the conditions are right for bracken to set seed. In the first instance, so you are purely looking at spread via rhizome, which wow. is again another reason. For if you've got your gardening waste, just don't put it somewhere where it shouldn't be, because you just might take something there that you don't actually want to have somewhere else. Yeah, I've I've seen that firsthand at my parents' house, dumping compost or old garden materials. Suddenly, you're like, "Why is rhubarb grown in the woods?" <laughs> and that's, yeah, exactly. that's just one plant, but. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mention that because, again, Bracken's ubiquitous. I see it here on this continent. It doesn't quite get five to six feet, which is pretty impressive where, where I see it. But I can't tell you any single moment where I've seen spores on a Bracken. So it, it does seem to be a pattern that's probably similar across all the range of the species, that it just needs that right window. So, wow, most of what we're seeing is clones. That's amazing. Hmm. And so from sort of the farming side of it, you mentioned that from this research, from your interest in bluebells, you're also starting to farm them. How did that shift take place? I mean, was it just people writing you and saying, hey, you've got interesting stuff. Would you be willing to sell us some? Yes. And I mean, I wouldn't call it farming sure. because farming sort of farming gives you the impression of uh, a nicely plowed field. And bluebell farming would be something where you've got nicely plowed fields and you might seed them or you might work with, you know, small bulbs, bulbs you're trying to grow bigger. I mean, I'd like to call it, we sustainably manage a wild bluebell population for the supply of seeds and bulbs. So if you need to picture the site, you have what I probably call a rocky outcrop mm. or very poor grazing land. The height is uh, 250 meters above sea level. It's a northwest facing hillside. Your soil depth is 10 centimeters, 15, 20 centimeters. You've got rocks sticking out. You've got some parts which have got a, a better cover, shall we say. I mean, when I first got here, which was 25 years ago, it was the upland, it was grazed by sheep. And I've removed sheep grazing to just basically to see what happens. Nowadays, you call it wilding or rewilding. But <laughs> it seems to be a, a shame that if you have uh, sheep grazing, you don't have any tree re regeneration. Mm. So anyway, so what we do is we have a license to harvest 100,000 bulbs a year which so far we haven't done for a single year. And um, we basically consider our stock to be in the ground and we work on demand. So we wouldn't get out tens of thousands, but in the hope that somebody might sell them, he'd need to come to us before and to say, this is what we want. That's when we need it. And we cater for that. 
And we then have to look at, depending on the number of bulbs, we've got a good idea about plant densities. We have to then look at what's the area we need clearing. And um, it's partly done by hand, hmm. if the numbers are small, or it's done motor manu manually, which is basically you use a... Um, well, yeah, you use an agricultural tool in order to get under the, the bracken rhizome and remove <laughs> that rhizome. So you have to do bracken clearing and you can then collect the, um, uh, the bulbs by hand. Wow. And as we just established a little bit ago, bracken clearing is its own task. So hats off to you and the effort there. Yeah. But what time of year is a good time of year to start doing this? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to imagine you can't do it while they're out and in flower. You kind of want to do it while they're kind of dormant and, and pulled themselves down. But that means you're then digging sometimes a foot or more into the soil depth just to get at those bulbs. Well, your ideal time for any bulb for, for harvesting is when they're dormant. Mm. And for the dormancy period, you are looking at midsummer to early autumn. Okay. Right. So that way they're, I've already done their spring thing. They've set seed. And, and is it easier to go from seed by any chance? Or is it you're waiting a much longer time period if you started with just a handful of seed versus a handful of bulb? Well, it depends what you want. From seed to flowering, you are looking at um, five years. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and what, I, what I find really quite funny is in year one, you, you know, you plant a seed, seed germinates. And in year one, that seed forms one leaf. Oh. So, and, and that leaf, I mean, in my conditions, is maybe two inches tall. I've seen them up to uh, six inches tall. And, so, and the bulb is maybe sort of three mils across, or the bulblet, I should possibly call it. And in um, year two, the bulb forms two leaves <laughs> and um, gets a little bit bigger. And in year three, it forms three leaves. And yeah, they generally think five to six years until flowering. So yes, it is a long time and wow. you would need to assure that you reduce competition during that time. And I mean, all of this sort of insight is really cool because you've got sort of the ecological, phenological side of things. Then you've got sort of the production side of things where you're looking at all angles of this plant's life cycle. And it, it really kind of going back to where we started with this emphasizes that these large patches of bluebells where the entire woodland looks blue, I mean, that takes decades, if not centuries to achieve. And it really kind yeah. of puts into context why plants like this can be so sensitive to disturbance, especially when you're going in, allowing a lot of cattle or grazing or plowing things over. I mean, that, that stuff, once it's gone, I mean, it won't probably come back in our lifetime, at least. No, and also the other thing that highlights for me is that it, it's all very well you're destroying an, an ancient woodland and plenty of examples in the UK where that's happening at the moment. I don't know, probably the same in the States. No, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and you say like, right, well, we are, we are just going to reestablish, um, you know, a, an alternative somewhere else. Mm. But that alternative, the, the amount of time that it has took that ecosystem to actually get to the state and to that state of balance that it was in and to that state of beauty and diversity particularly. If you are talking about uh, people are exceptionally keen to grow trees at the moment. I mean, everybody wants to grow trees and wants to plant trees and wants to grow forests, but a forest isn't just trees. Right. So you've got your whole understory vegetation that actually needs to, you know, needs to find a place, needs to somehow get into the balance. And yes, if you destroy it in one place, it's very difficult to recreate it somewhere else, or I mean, as a coming back to being a bluebell farmer, um, the problem I have with customers, and we're not particularly good at selling, 
but they have this image in their head of, right, I've got this lovely orchard and I just want to have a sea of blue underneath. And I said, like, yeah, well, usually in that sort of woodland situation, you are looking at, a, you know, you are looking at between 400 to 2,000 individual plants per square meter. Whoa. Now, how much money are you prepared to spend? <laughs> It's not, you know, it's it's not an easy, you know, it's just amazing when you see a bluebell woodland because it is just so many individual plants that you just don't, you just don't appreciate it. You don't realize that. You don't actually go down on your knees and look at the, in inverted commas, patheticness at the individual <laughs> because you just take in the whole sort of, you know, the whole population that you see. So, um yeah, I always wonder why they sell goods of five bulbs. Because five bulbs, you don't notice. Yeah. yeah. Honestly, you notice. Where did I put those? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> so it's a, it's it's an interesting, you know, problem ecologically and also from our, you know, selling bulbs to actually make your, you know, to talk to people about this is not really what you, you know, what you will get. I mean, I've got a good example. So I've given some to my mum. I've given 50 individuals to my mum, I think it was 15 years ago, and she planted them in one part of the garden. And every time I come to visit or every time they're in flower, she sends me a picture and says, this is all they do. And now, 15 years later, where she originally planted them, yes, you might find one or two or three, but that's about it. While 10 metres down the garden path, there is now about a square metre of bluebells <laughs> covered. And... Um, what we found out, um, well, found out is too strong a word. We have a strong hypothesis that suggests that you've got small mammals collecting seeds, mm. putting down seed stores, and it's those seed stores which give like the initial start to a population. And I think that's what happened in my mom's garden of taking seeds and just moving them down the garden path and obviously found an area that they like and, you know, successfully established and spread there. <laughs> but here you go. I mean, there's another perfect example of what you were just talking about with quote unquote recreating these sorts of habitats is that there's so many unseens and unknowns to think that you could even make a list of the plant species and even achieve 90% of what was once there. You know, the dynamics of all of the unseen players rodents different mammals what are they like are they even going to come back to a young forest or do you have to wait 50 to 100 years for it to be the right structure for them and then going back to even earlier in our conversation thinking of what's going on below ground that soil structure the mycorrhizal I was fungi think, soil chemistry what is the phosphorus bounded <laughs> right. for example you know what's your speciation what have you got to play with do you have too much yeah exactly yeah, I could imagine even if the dynamics of like soil nutrients, phosphorus, nitrogen, if they're not in a way that's favorable to say these slower growing species, if it's something, you know, if it's available in a way that a bully, quote unquote, bully species could come in and just winner takes all strategy. Can you even recreate those dynamics? And that's starting with soil chemistry. I mean, that that really kind of lends to the why we need to protect wild spaces as is and, and work on trying to understand them, you know, to be better restoration practitioners in the long run. Yep, agree. Wow. Amazing. So this this is really incredible work and also really incredible efforts at making sure people can get sustainably sourced native bluebells. Uh, where do you recommend people go to find out more about your work or to figure out how to get their hands on some of your bluebells? I, I obviously don't think you're doing many overseas selling, but uh, where, no, where can people no. find you? 
Well, while I have a website, the best would be to write to me. There's an email on there to, to write to me or to call me. I'm known as Vera Bluebell. If you put Vera Bluebell in, you find you know you find me. Find information about me. It's not difficult. As far as the scientific work is concerned, there again, if you are looking for a higher sensoidus non scripta, I think probably about a quarter of what has been published in the last um, 10 years is our work. It's not a very well-researched plant. Hmm. I mean, it's a, it's Britain's favorite wildflower. So if you do something with it, you generally get quite a lot of, oh, yeah, this is what has come on. And you get a bit of media interest. But generally, you know, going going by uh, via the Latin name will sort of throw up what we've done. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, that's Another great example of how things work a lot of times for plants, even the most common species we can know very little scientifically about. And that's uh, that's a, a sad fact, but I'm glad there's people like you putting in the work to understand some of our most charismatic wildflowers, especially those that are not all that well understood. So if I may call you Dr. Bluebelt, thank you so much for talking with us today. It has been an absolute pleasure. And what you're doing is fascinating and important. So keep it up. Thank you for having me. Of course. Cheers. Bye-bye. All right. How incredible was that? It's so neat to look at the chemistry that underlies a lot of these ecological dynamics and allow species like bluebells and brackens to sort of establish this delicate balance of persistence and reproduction on a landscape full of competition. I thank her for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us, and I highly recommend you check out the show notes for this episode for all of the relevant links for this discussion. I hope you enjoy this podcast, and if you do and you enjoy especially getting it for free each and every week, you have to thank my patrons over at patreon.com slash plants. They make this podcast possible with small but significant financial support each and every month. And it's not just the good feeling of helping support science communication efforts such as these. They're also getting some incredible kickbacks as well, including stickers and multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. Once again, that's patreon.com slash plants. Consider supporting this show today. If financial support's out of the question, which I completely understand at the very least, subscribe to, review, and tell your friends about In Defense of Plants. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to grow a podcast audience. And let's be honest, more people could afford to become inspired about the world of botany and ecology. You can also pick up a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, An Exploration into the Wonder of Plants, wherever books are sold. And if you're enjoying it, no matter which format or where you purchased it from, consider reviewing that as well. Finally, we also have a lot of great customizable merch full of wonderful vintage natural designs. Just head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash In Defense of Plants and see what we have going on over there. And know that a portion of your purchases is being donated to places like the Rainforest Trust, the Nature Conservancy, and the Biodiversity Heritage Library. But that is it for me this week. Again, thank you all for listening. You make this show possible, and I couldn't be doing it without your support. But until next week, this is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone. <laughs>